Good morning to you on this beautiful Sunday. From 85 to 35 in 10 hours. Was it even 10 hours? Only in Texas. Only in Texas. Put that far from your mind. Here we are today to worship and now turn our attention to God's Word. And with that end in view, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. I want to begin in chapter 2, verse 4. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, through to chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul is very doctrinal. And so he shares, explains, declares a number of truths. Again, that's chapter 1, verse 3. To chapter 2, verse 3, his emphasis is clearly doctrinal. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2, he shifts gears, different emphasis. He is now polemical. He sees problems on the horizon, and so he addresses a number of issues. From chapter 2, verse 4, through to the end of the, cha- end of the, end of the chapter, and look specifically, just briefly with me, at what he says in that fourth verse. I say this, in other words, all the doctrine I've explained to this point, I say this, in order that no one may delude you with what? Plausible arguments. There's a problem, there's a peril, there's a danger. We are susceptible to being deluded by ideas that sound good. They are plausible arguments. The first It's found in verse 8. I've called it humanism, very loosely termed. Humanism, what I mean is any way of thinking that is man-centered, man-focused. Man is the starting point. And so Paul warns against that plausible argument, that way of thinking in verse 8, humanism. It is a common thread through the remaining three plausible arguments. But in the remaining three plausible arguments, Paul is much more detailed in his emphasis. And so he warns, secondly, of legalism. He warns, thirdly, of mysticism. And then he warns, fourthly, of asceticism. Those three, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, are intertwined in the second chapter, beginning in verse 16, through to verse 23. Let me read that portion of God's word for us. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, You thought I was making that word up. No, I'm not. There it is. And worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So four plausible arguments in this polemical portion of Paul's letter. Humanism, verse 8, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, intertwined, interconnected in verses 16 through 23. Past couple of Sundays, we've tried to separate these verses just to help with our explanation. And so we focused a couple of Sundays ago on verses 16 and 17, the threat of legalism, this plausible argument uh, that can delude us if we're not careful. Legalism, what is it? Simply put, legalism is the belief that I can earn God's favor through my personal performance. That's it. It takes many forms. It expresses itself in many ways. But cut through it all, get right down to the foundation, the root idea, the basic notion. Here it is. I believe I can earn, merit, acquire God's favor through my personal performance. That was verses 16 and 17. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 18 and 19. Mysticism. What is mysticism? Here it is. I believe I can attain immediate, direct knowledge of God, with God, through my personal experience. Revelation, the Bible isn't necessary. I don't deny that the Bible is God's word, but in addition to God's word, I believe revelation is something that God gives me directly. That's at the heart, the root of mysticism. I can attain immediate knowledge of God through personal experience. Now, asceticism, our topic for today, what is it? The belief that I can achieve communion with God through personal deprivation. Through personal deprivation. So there you have these big three in these verses. Legalism, mysticism, asceticism. Hear me out, please. They are all dangerous. They will derail you. There are some, in all likelihood, gathered here this very day in this room who are derailed in terms of the faith, the Christian walk. And if you are careful, and if you look carefully, deeply, some of you will be able to trace the cause back to one of these three. Legalism, mysticism, or asceticism. They are all dangerous. They all seem like plausible arguments. They are all attractive in some way, to some degree, in some measure. In our day, they are all a threat. And yes, they, will, they are all capable of derailing us. Particularly in our day, I perceive the greatest threat to be mysticism. The one we considered last week. Why do I say that? I say that for the following reason. Speaking to Christians that when Christians hear of the threat of legalism and when they hear of the danger of asceticism, which we're going to hear today, they're quick to respond. The light, the light quickly goes on. And they say, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. When it comes to the threats of legalism and asceticism, we're, you know, we're traveling this road and we have this inclination to veer off in one of those two directions. And so all we need once in a while is just to be checked. 
given a little reality check, lassoed, you know, just sort of drawn back in, little tug, come back over here. You're, you're beginning to meander or wander from the way, come back over. And so when we hear a sermon or we hear what God has to say through his word regarding the threat of legalism and asceticism, we're quick to respond as Christians. In our day, not so with mysticism. Why? Because it is so embedded in people's thinking. It is the prevailing mindset. It is a given within evangelicalism today. You take a survey of most evangelicals today and you ask them to define revelation. You know what they'll say? They won't say this book, God's revelation. You know what they'll say? God speaks to me. I hear him inside. And I, I have voices. And uh, I, I try to discern which is God's voice. I've got news for you. None of them are God's voice. They're all your voice. Uh, or I hear him audibly speaking to me from outside. Uh, God reveals himself to me. And this is embedded in people's thinking. This is, this is a given, folks, within evangelicalism. God speaks to me. And, uh, and then when confronted with what the Bible actually has to say on this subject, the tendency, even for believers, to what? Is to become entrenched. Why? Because it hits pride. It, it attacks the sensuous mind, which revels in the idea that I have a direct phone line with God, God speaks to me, and that's the basis of my relationship with God and the assurance of my spirituality and piety. For that reason, we're going to return to mysticism. Not today. Not next Lord's Day. I think two weeks from now. We're going to come back because I only looked at the tip of the iceberg last Sunday. There is much more that needs to be said. And this is a topic that needs to be addressed fully, completely, finally, because as, as, as I've said already, it will derail you if you don't get it right. If we're, if we're not clear on this, you will end up in left field, my friend. Sooner or later, you will end up out there. And you'll be hearing all sorts of voices, and it will make you a navel gazer. As you listen for God's voice, and you do try to determine where is God speaking, what is God doing, how is God working. God speaks. God speaks just like any human being speaks from outside of ourselves. He speaks through his word. And as we receive his word, Christ dwells within us and fills us with his spirit. If you want to know God's will, chapter and verse, you find it in the Bible. If you want to hear God speak, pick up the Bible and read it. If you want to hear something directly from the Lord, begin in Genesis 1.1, read it right through to Revelation, and I guarantee you, you will hear from the Lord. He speaks. He speaks whenever his people are gathered. And the word of God is held in high esteem and given the preeminence which it deserves. It is faithfully expounded and proclaimed. We hear the voice of God. And as we hear the voice of God through the word of God, God speaking objectively to us from outside of ourselves gives us an objective reality. Therefore, Christ dwells richly within us by the Holy Spirit, forming us into the likeness of Christ. So again, we're going to come back to it in a couple of weeks. Just put that all out there so you have something to look forward to. But for now, asceticism. And in particular, verses 20 through 23. Asceticism, the idea that I can achieve communion with God through personal deprivation. Popular belief system in the history of the church, we could go all the way back to the 3rd century, gains in popularity toward the end of the 3rd century, births an entire movement, scary word, known as monasticism. Monasticism, monastery, monasticism, monastery, monk. You hear the similarity? This idea that to be a follower of the Lord Jesus means I need to step out of the world, 
go live in seclusion and deprive myself of basic necessities. So if I deprive myself of sleep, or I deprive myself of the marital bed, or I deprive myself of food or drink, just deprive myself, sleep on the floor. If I somehow cut myself off from the basic necessities of life, personal deprivation, I will somehow achieve, arrive at, attain this, this perception, really it's a false perception, of closer communion with God. Monasticism birthed very early in the church's history. You fast forward and you come to the 12th century, so the 1100s. There's a huge break in the church as the Roman Empire, really the revised Roman Empire, falls apart. The West, you have Roman Catholicism, the Catholic Church, Latin-based. The East, you have the Orthodox Church, Greek-based. But both have a strong ascetic tradition, monastic tradition, monks, nuns. This idea that if you really want to be close to God, if you really want to experience a higher spirituality, if you really want to know what it means to commune with God, there's a threefold pathway. A threefold pathway. The start of this pathway is purification. You must purify your body because, you see, your body is your basic problem. It's in the way. The soul needs to be released. And through purification, you then move on to contemplation. And it's through contemplating the divine nature, the divine essence or whatever, that you then arrive at the ultimate goal, which is union. Now, you see how contrary that is to Scripture. You see how the opposite that is to biblical faith. At the starting point of our relationship with God is union. To be a Christian is to be in union with God. To be a Christian is to be united with Christ. But see, this is turned on its head in that other tradition. And no, the starting point is purification. That then moves on to contemplation. And then there's this climactic experience known as union with God. Now, I hope you're sitting there asking yourself, why are you boring me with this? This isn't that important. It is because it's appearing in many of the books you're reading. Right? It's showing up in many of the books we're reading. There has been in the last couple of decades a renewed interest in medieval spirituality. And even so-called evangelical writers have been going back to what we call the mystics of either the Catholic tradition in the West or the Orthodox tradition in the East. And they've been buying in, some of them knowingly, some of them unknowingly, into this idea of the threefold pathway to God. And so there is a higher life. There is a higher experience. There is a greater level, a greater plane of spirituality. They might not call it union with God, but that's essentially what's in essence. Really communing with God. Really knowing God. Really having a personal experience with God. How do you get there? And it's this idea of purification, contemplation. And this threefold pathway is showing up and rearing its ugly little head here and there, even within evangelical literature. The problem is what? The problem is you pick up a book, and a lot of stuff in the book is good. A lot of good stuff in there. But running through it are these currents. And you can pick up on it. You can pick up on it in two ways. The first is this idea that there is some climactic experience to strive for. There's something more. There's something greater that if only we get the system right, that if only we get it all lined up, everything in order, and if only we're doing this, and if only we're doing that, we will achieve to it. There's something greater. There's got to be something more. A higher level, higher plane of spirituality. The second way to know is this, simply by who these people are quoting. Just look at the footnotes once in a while. You won't see any of the Puritans there. You certainly won't see any of the Reformers. 
You'll see some of these mixed mystics. You'll see other names of the past 40, 50 years. And they are embedded in what is called medieval spirituality, based on an ascetic mindset and this idea of the threefold pathway to God. Now, we hear all that. Think, well, okay, well, thanks for that, but it's got nothing to do with me. I'd never even heard the word monasticism before today. Asceticism can't spell it. I can't, I'm not sure I can spell it right now. And um, well, what's that got to do with me? I, I look on that stuff. You're describing that kind of severe lifestyle and depriving the body. Well, I'm not, I'm not into that. I don't buy into any, any of that. Or we buy into far more subtle forms of it. Far more subtle forms. Let me give you four. A few numbers today. Let me give you four examples. I've written these down, and I'm going to read them because I want to say them word for word because I don't want to be misquoted. Well, I can be misquoted, but I can always then refer back to the tape and say, you've misquoted me. So here they are, word for word. I'm going to get rid of my computer and television. Is that good or bad? It depends. It's good. If I'm struggling with wasting time or watching trash and decide it's in my best interest to get rid of these things, okay? It's bad if I think for one moment that the mere act of getting rid of my computer and television will address the root cause of my sin and therefore make me more spiritual closer to God. That's asceticism. Second example. I'm going to become a missionary. Is that good or bad? You're thinking, no-brainer, Stephen. That's good. It depends. It's good. If God has called me and equipped me to proclaim the gospel to an unreached people's group, that's good. That's excellent. That's laudable. It's bad. If I think for one moment that the sacrifice of leaving family... The challenge of learning another language, the difficulty of living in another culture, and the struggle of proclaiming the gospel in a hostile environment will make sin less enticing to me and therefore make me more spiritual, closer to God. That is a form of, subtle form, of asceticism. Third example. I'm going to wake up at four every morning to pray for two hours. Is that good? It depends. It's good if I desire to spend time with the Lord and decide this is the best way to do so given the demands of the day. It's bad if I think for one moment that the mere act of depriving myself of sleep, filling a two-hour time slot and making this personal sacrifice will weaken the power of sin in me and therefore make me closer to God, more spiritual. That's asceticism. And here's the fourth example. I'm going to fast on Thursdays. Is that good or bad? You know the answer. It depends. It's good. If I want to use my physical hunger as a means to remind me of my far greater spiritual hunger and therefore of my need to depend on God, repent of my sin, and intercede for others. It is bad if I think for one moment there is something meritorious about the mere act of fasting that in itself makes me less vulnerable to sin and therefore makes me more spiritual, closer to God. That is a form of asceticism. 
It's subtle, isn't it? But we are all vulnerable to it. The idea that there are things involving us physically, things that if we simply do, or things in and of themselves, that if we simply deprive ourselves of this thing, and if we stop doing that, and if we refrain from doing that, there is this tendency, it is subtle, but it is there, lurking. This tendency to think that if I am doing these things, these things, these acts of deprivation, great or small, in and of themselves, will make me more spiritual. They will make me closer to God. They will help me attain to a greater level of spirituality and relationship with God. Why are we attracted to this? Why are so many people susceptible to asceticism in its great expressions and in its not-so-great expressions, the ones I've just given you? I've got six reasons. I don't know if we'll get through all of these. If I move quickly, we will. Here's number one. Some people are committed to a faulty worldview. That's why it's attractive. Some people are committed to a faulty worldview. A lot of isms this morning. Here's one more. I can't promise it's the last as I scan on my notes. I think it is. One more ism, dualism. Dualism, dual, duo, two. And so you think of uh, the created order, the universe. Dualism is basically this belief that everything divides into two sections. You have over here the spiritual, and you have over here material. Uh, Same applies to human nature. You have the spiritual, the soul, and you have obviously the material, the physical, the body. According to dualism, everything that is physical is evil. That's where evil resides, is in the physical. Everything that is spiritual is good. Same is true when it comes to your body, uh, your, your human nature, what it means to be human. Uh, your body, that is the physical part of you, is inherently evil. It's the source of all your problems. It's why you sin. Your soul, the spiritual part of you, is good. And see, what you really are is then you're a, you're a good soul trapped in a bad body. And redemption is really the release of the soul from the body so that you can contemplate with the ultimate spiritual God himself. And so if you want to do that now, you can see where this is going, right? If you want to do that now, here's what you must do. You need to deaden your body. Don't kill it, although some did go to that extreme. But uh, deaden its senses. Deprive yourself of sleep. Uh, deprive yourself in terms of what you eat, what you drink, the marital bed, celibacy, acts of poverty, all of these things. Deprive yourself, deprive yourself, deaden the senses of your body. And as you deaden the senses of your body, that which is evil, you will therefore release that which is good, the spiritual, the soul, to commune with God. That is a dualistic worldview. You're thinking, well, none of us in this room think that. Sure, most of us do. That's our concept of glory. We're going to be these disembodied little cherubs with wings floating around in heaven. Isn't that how many of us view eternity? Right? And yet, what does Scripture say? Scripture promises a renovation, a physical renovation of the entire universe. And our hope is in what? The resurrection of the body. Christ has redeemed us body and soul. There is nothing inherently evil about your body. God saw all that he created, and it was very good. The physical realm is not inherently evil. The physical realm is not the root nor the origin of our problems. 
Sin resides within. But in a dualistic understanding, no, you see, it's the body that's my problem. And so if I beat up the body and if I deprive myself, the simple act of doing that will ensure closer communion between the spiritual and the ultimately spiritual God. Second reason is this. Some people are confused by Paul's use of the word flesh in the Bible. For example, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Famous statement from the Apostle Paul out of Romans 7. What does he mean by flesh? Well, I hear that word and I immediately think what? Flesh. Skin, body, that's not what he's talking about. For the most part, whenever Paul uses the word flesh, he's actually referring to human nature, primarily the heart. And he is reminding us that the flesh, the heart, is what? Dead in its trespasses and sins. He's reminding us that by virtue of the fall, our minds do not think as they were designed to think. They're darkened, spiritually ignorant. Because of the fall, our hearts don't crave what they should crave. They go after all sorts of false idols. And therefore, our wills are enslaved to our darkened mind and our hardened heart. That is the flesh. But some people misinterpret Paul's use of that word. Well, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And they well, that's my body. And therefore, I have to deal with my body. And if I somehow get my body under control, it will release me for that intimacy, that fellowship, that communion with God that I desire. It is misplaced. And arises from a misunderstanding of Paul's use of words. Third reason. Some people are perplexed by Christ's call to discipleship. Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does that mean? There are two elements to discipleship. Over here, denying self. Over here, following Christ. Some people have taken the first part of that denying self to mean, well I, well, I deny the essentials, basic necessities of life. That's not what the Lord Jesus is saying. To deny self is to deny self. It is to subdue the inordinate passions of the heart. To follow Christ is to suffer affliction. And so the one is internal, the realm of the heart. The other is external, suffering afflictions in this world. That is Christ's call to discipleship. Fourth reason for the confusion is this. Some people are motivated by spiritual pride. We like scorecards. We do. We like tangibles. We like checklists. Here's my list. And it's all good. We like things which are identifiable, that if I'm doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, refraining from that, refraining from that, depriving myself of this, the list looks good. And what does it do? It feeds our pride, and we sure hope somebody somewhere is noticing. And so the Lord Jesus warns in Matthew 6 of those who fast without washing their faces, those who fast without anointing their heads, those who fast without changing their garments. Why? Because they want to be seen by men. And so people love identifiable, tangible markers for themselves, for others to notice, because it is in these things that they root the basis of their spirituality and their relationship with God. And as long as these things are in place, they assure themselves, all must be well with the soul. Fifth reason is this. Some people are frustrated by the church's worldliness. I believe this is why monasticism grew in such popularity, especially in the fourth century. Second, third century. Early on in the history of the church, you have the days of the martyrs. 
Everyone's being martyred, right, left, and centered because of the persecution, first from the Jews, then from the Roman authorities. And so it is a place, a time of tremendous growth, tremendous zeal. And then Christianity is sanctioned and, and becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire under Constantine. And within a generation, the church has become flabby. The church has become downright chubby. As a matter of fact, the church becomes obese, and it makes a number of Christians sick just how sick the the church has become. And so monasticism almost becomes a protest movement, that to cut themselves off from the worldliness of the church, out they go to live in the desert and live in treetops, live in caves, thinking that they're separating themselves from all that is wrong and therefore drawing closer to God. We see the same tendency today, because the church is just as flabby in our day as it was in the 4th century. And it's frustrating at times. The compromise is frustrating. The worldliness is disheartening. The lack of zeal and enthusiasm and commitment are depressing and discouraging. The lack of zeal for holiness, oh, it's frustrating. And so the tendency is to become a protest movement and reactionary. And whenever we react to something, what is their greatest peril? Is we run where? To the opposite extreme, asceticism. And the sixth and final reason, oh, there are others. These are the six I'm going to give you. Why people are susceptible to asceticism is this. Some are puzzled by the biblical concept of moderation. Puzzled by the biblical concept of moderation. Moderation, fancy word for self-control. God created all things, saw that it was very good, declared that it was very good, and he has given his creation to us for us to enjoy. He's given the marital bed to us to enjoy. He's given food and drink to enjoy. He's given sports and recreation to enjoy. He's given creation, the created order, to enjoy in moderation. That charge of moderation has led some people to an extreme thinking, well, all those things have to go. No, no, no. To approach and enjoy God's good gifts in self-control implies three things. Quickly, one, it implies we enjoy his good gifts sacredly. That simply means we acknowledge that they come from him. They are gifts to be enjoyed. We enjoy his good gifts. We receive them soberly. We don't turn them into an idol. We don't worship them. Thirdly, we enjoy God's good gifts by enjoying them sensibly. We don't make them more important than the soul. That's what all moderation is. That's all it is. God has given us stupendous gifts in the created order. He has given us delights, physical delights, physical pleasures, and he has given them to us as a benevolent God. He has given them to us because they are good for us. But Scripture warns us that in our fallen state, our tendency is to what? To abuse them. Hence the call for moderation. And if you keep those three words in in mind, you'll do well. We enjoy them sacredly, soberly, and sensibly. And so now we're clear, firstly, on what asceticism is. We're clear, at least I hope we're clear, on why we are susceptible at times, vulnerable to it. And now we come precisely to what the Apostle Paul has to say about it, beginning in verse 20. Follow along as I read these verses again for us. If with Christ... 
you die to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I want you to notice five things. Paul makes five points. Here's number one. The threat of asceticism. It is a threat, meaning it is a peril, it is a danger. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? It's too soft. What are you saying there? Why do you enslave yourselves to regulations? Why do you place yourself in bondage again to regulations? That's what he's saying. His point is this. He makes it very clearly at the start of verse 20. You've died to the elemental spirits of the world. We looked at this back in chapter 2, verse 8. The elemental spirits of the world ties into this humanistic thinking, man-centered thinking, which has its root, where? In demonic activity. Are demons real? Yes. Are demons active? Yes. They're not the bugbear in your car. What demons are doing primarily above everything else is they are spirits of deception. And they are sowing deception in this world. And they seek to sow deception among God's people. And so they are the elemental spirits of the world which give birth and give rise to a humanistic sort of thinking which leads to all these worldly systems of religion. And Paul says in verse 15, but in Christ, Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities. You're now in Christ. They've been defeated. They've been publicly humiliated, embarrassed. He has triumphed over them and he has put them to open shame. But understand this, when you begin to veer away into asceticism and you enter into that realm again, you have re-entered into a worldly way of thinking. You have re-entered into a way of thinking that has its ultimate origin in demonic activity. You are putting yourself again under bondage to the elemental spirits of the world. I think this is pretty serious. This is a threat. The threat of asceticism it will derail you spiritually because you are again enslaving yourself to a humanistic, man-centered way of thinking, a very man-based system of religion which has its ultimate origin in demonic deception. Second thing he has to say is this, concerning its content, the content of asceticism. Last word, right at the end of verse 20. It's all about regulation. What kind of regulations? Regulations can be good or bad. It depends. The law is good. God's law is good, right, true, and perfect. That's not the regulations Paul has in view here. He gives us some examples in verse 21. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. And so it's these regulations rooted in this philosophical system known as asceticism that the root of my problems is my body. And if only I subdue the body, if only I deprive myself of certain physical things, then those things in and of themselves will guarantee a higher level, a higher plane of spirituality. That is the content. Look thirdly at the failure of asceticism. Verses 22 and 23. It makes three huge mistakes. Start of verse 22, referring to things that all perish as they are used. There's the first mistake. Asceticism focuses on things which are of absolutely no eternal consequence. 
Asceticism focuses on things which are temporary. Asceticism focuses on things which are trivial. Huge mistake number two, the rest of verse 22. According to human, human precepts and teachings. It's man-centered. It's man-based. It, it, it arises from what man perceives to be, to be best. Man who lives perpetually in a, del, in a delusion state. Man who is deceived by, by the demonic activities. Man who is enslaved to the system of this world. Man who is enslaved to the sinfulness of his own heart. And so this is where this teaching comes from. That's its origin. Huge mistake. The third mistake it makes is this. Right at the end of verse 23. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's the third huge mistake. So the first huge mistake, the focus is all wrong. Things which are temporary, passing, trivial, of no consequence whatsoever. The second mistake is the entire origin system of thought is man-centered. The third mistake is this. It is, if I can ad lib, completely useless. Why? Because it does not address the issue. What is the flesh? They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. As Paul uses the term flesh, it is not the body. It is the heart. As the Lord Jesus himself warned, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what? Defile him. Why? Because the origin, the root, the cause of all our sin is the flesh. The flesh being what? The corrupt human heart. The problem resides within. And asceticism never gets to the root of the problem. Asceticism deals with peripheral issues. Asceticism deals with perishable things. Because asceticism is rooted in a humanistic Thought process. Fourth thing Paul says, verse 23, the appeal of asceticism. Look what he says right at the outset of verse 23. These have indeed, all these regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These have indeed, pay attention to what he says here, an appearance of wisdom. They look good in promoting Self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. There is something appealing about it. Ooh, look at what that guy does. Look at the discipline. Look at the strict life. Look at what he goes without. Look at the sacrifice. Look at the zeal. Look at the suffering. Look at his personal deprivation. And look at what I perceive to be just a remarkable relationship with the Lord. Oh, the communion he must enjoy. And how close he must be to God to be able to live like that. And how pleased God must be with him. And oh, he, he's, on, he's, just, he's just in a different world. He, this is going back early in the text. He's, he's now entered the realm of the worship of angels. He's in, a, he's in a different stratosphere. He's really in communion with God. He's really in union with God. 
He's really alive, arrived. It has an appearance of wisdom, but it is all an illusion. Let's face it, folks. Sunday today. So I decide this afternoon I'm going to head into the state park, Dinosaur Valley State Park, uh, by myself with what I've got on. Right? So 85 one day, 35 the next day, sleet, freezing rain, sunshine, rain. Who knows what I'm going to get. I'm going to go on four hours of sleep per day, maybe only three because I'm feeling particularly spiritual right now. And um, I'm not going to take any food with me. I'm not going to eat anything. I'm only going to drink out of the Paluxy. Steady. And I'm not going to uh, interact with another human being. I can talk to birds. That's it. By Friday, one of two things will have happened. One, either I'll be flat on my back in the ER staring up at Long, and Long will be staring down at me and speaking the truth in love, you're nuts. Either that will happen, or you know what else will happen? I'll see some things. I will see some things. I will have an experience. I will. I'll hear from God. I will. Gabriel might show up. Angels. I'll take a trip to heaven. I'll engage. The devil will come, and we'll have it out as well. And I'm going to have some tremendous experiences. And you know what I'm going to do then? I'm going to label it a vision from the Lord. And that's going to be my next book. I'm going to dedicate it to you all. And then I'm going to go on tour. I'm going to fill gymnasiums. I'm going to become an evangelical rock star. And people are going to come from all over because this is, this is just so exhilarating. This is just so fantastic. This is just so wonderful. I have deluded myself. And I have deluded them. It is one great illusion. Under extreme duress. The mind and body are incapable of unbelievable things. You know, I mentioned some books, browsing, Barnes and Noble last Sunday. All, everybody and their grandmother's gone to heaven in the last five years. I don't know what's going on, but they've been there, and they're writing about it. Paul went once. We dared not say anything about it, but that doesn't stop everybody else from writing books and going on the tour. But um, everybody's going to heaven. How do we explain that? Two ways. Cynical side of me. Actually, not that cynical. It's true. Evangelicalism is simply a commercial enterprise. Evangelicalism is a big business. And there are a lot of gullible people within evangelicalism. And so somebody comes out with one story, and you know, boom, 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 hot off the press. Within the next year, there are going to be umpteen more. Someone verified for me last week. That is a word, umpteen. There are going to be umpteen more books of people who have gone to heaven. Because everybody's trying to make a profit. And evangelicalism is prime for the picking. The second reason is this. Some people, yes, under extreme duress, under extreme physical duress, body and mind. Oh, the body and mind will respond, friends, in very unusual ways. Extreme trauma or extreme deprivation, five days in the state park living like I'm proposing to live. You're going to see something. Dare not label it a word from the Lord. It's not. You're deluding yourself. And I'm deluding, if I fall into I'm deluding myself. And I'm deluding others. Oh, but it is so appealing. It, it just seems so radical. 
seems so zealous. The sacrifice, the commitment, and the story is, is just unbelievable. It gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Truly, it must be right. And, and I just feel so encouraged, and, and I see things I've never seen before, and the understood things I've never understood before. This is just taking, you don't know what it's done for my relationship with God. It's just taking me to a whole new level. That's the way I think. I have fallen into the very thing the Apostle Paul is warning against here in black and white. Let no one delude you with plausible arguments. Fifth thing he has to say is this. The solution to asceticism. What is it? Right back at the start of verse 20. If with Christ you died, there's the solution. It's been the theme running throughout these first two chapters. It's the theme he keeps repeatedly going back to. Union with Christ, union with God is not the goal. Union with Christ is the starting point, my friends, and it is all there is. To be a Christian is to be in union with Christ, union with God. To be a Christian is to have taken hold of Christ by faith because he has taken hold of us by the Holy Spirit. That's the starting point. That's not the end point. It's the starting point, and there's all there is. We're brought into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul made this clear back in verses 11 and 12, that because we are one with Christ, we are now circumcised in him. This is a spiritual circumcision, not performed by hands. It's not something physical. It's spiritual. Performed on what? The putting off of the body of flesh. What's the body of flesh? It's not your physical body. It's the problem of sin. We're riddled with it in the inner man. But we become one with Christ. And because we're one with Christ, we are one with him legally. That means by virtue of our union with him, he has dealt fully, finally, completely with the penalty of my sin. His death is my death. His burial is my burial. His resurrection is my resurrection. He paid the penalty in full. I'm one with him. Guess what? As far as God is concerned, I've paid the penalty. Not me and myself, in my Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm one with him legally. Not only am I one with him legally, I am one with him virtually. Not only by virtue of that union has he paid the penalty for my sin, he has broken the power of my sin. The life I live, I now live by faith in Jesus Christ. And by virtue of the Holy Spirit, that darkened mind, oh, there's a little illumination. I'm beginning to see things. The heart is softened whereby I love the one I never loved before. And the will is liberated that I can obey him and serve him and perform those good works which he designed for me before the foundation of the world. The power is broken and it is all because I am one with Christ, united with him. That is the solution. By virtue of union with Christ, hear me, Christian, please. By virtue of union with Christ, you have already got everything you're ever going to get. You've got everything you're ever going to get. The Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing more. And by virtue of our union with Christ, we are as close to God as we're ever going to get. We are in communion with him. Remember from a few Sundays ago, I stated it like this. The issue is not how close are we to God. The issue right now is this. Are we enjoying how close we are to God? 
Is it a daily reality how close we are to God? Do we daily, tenaciously hold fast to the head and devote ourselves to those means, the external, objective word of God, the gathering of the saints which he has given us, by which we hear his voice, he speaks to us, and as he speaks to us and that objective word enters the heart and is implanted, he dwells in the heart through faith, whereby we're conformed evermore into his likeness. Ah, well, you know, that, that, I hear you. Amen. And I get it. And all this other stuff, okay, uh, the, the warnings are out there now. I'm going to have to keep a close eye on this stuff and keep it all in its place. But how do I do this then? How, how do I a hold fast to the head? How do I live daily in the reality of what it means to be united with Christ legally and virtually? How, how, how do I veil myself of that objective reality, the word of God, and God speaking through his word and through the proclamation of his word. Well, the answer to that, my friend, is chapter 3. Paul moves doctrinally, the first section, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. He enters into this, these polemics. He is rather combative. Chapter 2, verse 4, through to the end of the chapter. And now he wants to address this great, great question of, of, of how. Well then, well, then how do I do that? How do I grow? How do I enjoy how close I actually am to God by virtue of my union with Christ? And the answer to that begins in chapter 3, verse 1, goes all the way through to chapter 4, verse 6. And I promise you that is where we're going to camp out for the next two or three months as we consider what it means to live daily in the enjoyment, the full enjoyment making it a daily reality, our unchangeable position in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are one with him, as one as we're going to get in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And you think, I mean, it was a polemical sermon, polemical text. And you might think, well, not a lot in there to to give thanks for. Oh, if we listen carefully, there is a lot in there to give thanks for. I mean, we we give thanks for the warning that that Scripture brings, uh, the clear-headedness, I hope, and the perils that are out there. Uh, We give thanksgiving for just how God's Word is uh, so relevant, uh, speaks to, to our days, speaks to our times, speaks to our situations. We give thanks for how the Lord Jesus is so central. Even in these polemical passages, how Paul keeps pointing us back there to Christ, back to Christ, back to Christ. Christ, the objective reality of the Lord Jesus and what it means to be one with him, the starting point and the end point. And we give thanks. Uh, Thanksgiving is difficult. Uh, Thanksgiving is difficult unless we've experienced the opposite of what we're thankful for. So we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, Eucharisto. means we give thanks, thanksgiving. That is difficult. It's challenging at times. Unless we are really clear, uh, we really know the opposite of what we are giving thanks for. Does that make sense to everyone? I was meditating on this this morning and uh, jotted down a few words. Think, Think about this as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. It's the darkness of night that makes dawn so uplifting. The dawn, the sun coming up would be nothing apart from the darkness of night. 
It's the torment of pain that makes relief so comforting. It's the cold of winter that makes spring so encouraging. It's the loneliness of separation that makes reunion so refreshing. You see where I'm going with this. Thanksgiving for all those things, but our thanksgiving arises from our knowledge of the opposite. Now build. It's the emptiness of self that makes the fullness of Christ so satisfying. It is the horror of sin that makes the forgiveness of God so overwhelming. It is the pain of rebellion that makes the peace of God so inspiring. And it is the prospect of hell that makes the promise of glory so appealing. Eucharisto. We give thanks as we partake of the loaf and as we partake of the cup. Let's bow and seek the Lord's blessing upon this ordinance. Our Father, we worship you and ascribe to you all glory, honor, and praise. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who became man, who walked among men, who fulfilled all righteousness, and who was obedient even unto the death of the cross. We thank you for the Spirit, who has made us one with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we thank you for raising us to newness of life in Christ. And we accept these great gifts. We celebrate these tremendous blessings as the fulfillment of your eternal covenant. You have promised, you have pledged yourself to take us as your people and to be our God. And as we partake of these emblems this day, we pray that our minds might be drawn to this great reality, this great truth. We pray that we might be encouraged with him. And we pray that our participation might be for the nourishment of our faith. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.